Well, I would invite you now to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians as we continue on in the Word of God in the book of Ephesians. Last week we did an intro and uh, we discussed the background of this book. We talked about Paul's long association with the church in Ephesus. When he wrote to these people, he was not writing to a church he was unfamiliar with, a church that he hadn't visited. Uh, as he, for instance, had not visited before he read, uh, wrote to them the church in Rome. This was a church he knew. These were people that he knew. And they were people he was writing not only to inform, but to encourage, to stir them up, to remind them of the benefits that they had and why they had them. And it will be of great use to us if we listen to what he had to say to them, because it's just as relevant to us in the church today. Uh, one of the things that I would uh, let you know is I'm going to uh, invite you not only to read along with me, but to keep your Bibles open after we're done reading. Uh, I'm going to be doing um, uh, some close exposition, or I hope I'm going to be doing some close exposition of the, uh, what Paul says here. And so it will help if you, uh, if you know what I'm talking about and you know the verse that I'm commenting on as we do that. But before we come to the Word of God, let's, let's turn to the God who gave us this Word and let's ask for His blessing now. Almighty and Sovereign God, we are so thankful, Lord, that You have given us Your Word, a testimony to Your goodness, a testimony to Your grace. Lord, Paul did not only preach the Word, he lived it out. And he certainly was zealous for the people whom he loved, the church that he had planted and was seeking to encourage and grow. And Lord, I pray therefore that as we seek to grow and to reach others, that you would help us to hear his words and that we would have that great gift of assurance ourselves and that we would understand where it comes from. Help me now to preach, Lord. I pray that you would open your people's ears, that you would give them wisdom and insight. And I pray, Lord, that I would not say anything that doesn't stand fully in keeping with what you teach in your word. Oh Lord, let us all have that Berean spirit and not accept everything that is said, but rather to search the scriptures to see if these things are true. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 6. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. As a good pastor, Paul obviously wanted to reach these Ephesians that he loved, and indeed Christians beyond that. I have no doubt that this letter we know obviously was copied after it went to Ephesus, and then it was circulated throughout the churches to Asia, and uh, eventually it reached us. And it was God's intention that we would be edified and informed by these words of Paul as well. But Paul, as a pastor, immediately wanted to teach the Ephesians in his letter. He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to direct them. And he wanted to give them confidence and assurance. Assurance is one of those things that often Christians struggle with and long have. We struggle not just to, to 
make sure that we understand the faith. We struggle with the great question, am I really saved? I have often admitted uh, myself, I, I never doubt, not since I was saved, never have I doubted the lordship of Christ. I've never doubted his deity. I've never doubted that the things that the gospel teaches are true. But sometimes I doubt my own participation in them. I doubt whether or not I really am a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are days I wake up and I feel just like a wretch who is far from God. I look at my own performance. Those are days on which the devil directs me to my own works or lack thereof. And I feel downhearted. I think to myself, how can someone who is so pathetic in terms of his own Christian growth. I look at the, at the way that the, the giants of the Christian faith, how, how much they accomplished in the past, how zealous they were for the word, and I reflect upon my own meager efforts, and I say, are you even really saved at all? Well, Paul wanted to direct the people of God to the truth. He wanted them to see that their assurance of salvation lay not in their own works or their own feeble attempts at righteousness, but lay in the completed work of Christ and the sovereignty of God and the electing grace of the Father and how wonderful that was. He wanted to assure them of God's love to them, not just in its sense in which it's here today and possibly gone tomorrow. He wanted them to understand that that love that God expressed towards them was eternal and unchanging. He wanted them to understand who they are, and not only who they are, but whose they are now and forever. And he wanted to assure them of the love of God based in his eternal electing grace and not in their good works. Paul is now writing to them and saying, if you're good, maybe God will love you. Rather, he is writing to them and saying, God, like a loving parent, a father, has loved you before you were even brought into existence. He doesn't say, if you're good, maybe you can be my son or daughter and receive my love. He says, because you are my son, because you are my daughter, then receive my love and respond accordingly. The first thing, therefore, we need to realize, and perhaps um, is, and this is probably one of the most difficult things for Christians to learn, is that everything that goes on in the church. Everything that we do, everything that we are is grounded ultimately in the sovereignty of God. We might say we, as I asked for prayer, I said, you know, let us uh, pray that the ARP would be more successful in planting churches. But ultimately, it's not we who plant churches. It's God who plants churches. It is God who gathers in his people and who builds them up in the faith. It is God who has elected. It is God who has redeemed. It is God who is gathering in his people. And it is God, ultimately, who is building and will build his church. And nothing will thwart him. He has given us his assurance through the words of his son that even the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So the question we need to concern ourselves with, therefore, is not how can we build churches for God, but rather how can we be used as servants by God as he builds his church? How can we be used in that wonderful process of redemption that is going on throughout the world? And we should be thinking that's going on here in Fayetteville as well. How can we, the members of Providence PC, oh my word, there's something, the members of Providence ARP, I'm going to have to cut the feed later on and get it off of my... Uh, anyway, I just 
This is awful, awful. But uh, how can we be used to build up his church in this city? How can we be used in the ingathering of the saints? So Paul writes, as we see here, he writes to the Haggioi, the saints who are in Ephesus. They are also, he says, faithful in Christ Jesus. You see that in verse 1. Now, someone who is a believer is somebody who has been set apart by God for his purposes. A believer is not one who is struggling and striving to become holy, to become set apart. He is someone who has been set apart. Calvin said very well, no one is a believer who is not holy, and no one is holy who is not a believer. If we want to be holiness to the Lord, then we must believe on the Lord. And most especially, we must believe the gospel of his son. And then we know that his work has already begun in us. If we exercise that faith, it's because God has begun the great work of conforming us to the image of his son. Why were these saints, these Haggioi, why were they made part of the church? Why were they made part of the assembly, a particular expression of it in Ephesians? Well, the answer that God gives is grace. It's the grace of God that led to them being made part of it. Grace is unmerited favor. The grace and the favor of God is the source of all the good that comes to us. And what Paul says here is that out of this grace that God shows to us, this unmerited favor, flows peace. And when he says peace, he doesn't mean peace as the world understands it, a lack of of strife and contention at a particular time. He means peace with God by which we are reconciled to him. And he means from that peace with one another within that community, peace within our fellow, with our fellow man. But it's more than simply a peace that means we're not at war. Peace uh, in, in um, the sense that Paul is using it, and the corresponding Hebrew word um, that's uh, used for peace means well-being in general. It is that we are at peace. And it's hard for me to put it into words. We're at peace with the universe. The unbeliever is essentially struggling against all of creation. He is fallen. He is sinful. He is alienated from God. He is cut off from his fellow man. As we look at the world, as we look at America, as we, we look at what, what becomes of people without God, we see Fundamentally, a lack of peace, a lack of well-being, a lack of having that assurance within themselves that they have a God who loves them and cares for them and who is seeking their best. What Paul says is, that's not you. You are people who have been given that fundamental peace with God, and you have, therefore, all of the blessings that God intends for his children to have, the full inheritance he intends to settle upon you. You have blessings now. You have even greater blessings later on. And that is all because of his grace, the unmerited favor that he has shown to you, which flows in turn out of his love. And isn't it right that that Paul would start out by blessing God for the spiritual gifts that he bestows upon his people? Not pumping them up, but saying, isn't our God wonderful? Hasn't he done such good for us? We did not deserve it. And what does he ground those blessings in? Something that that makes people angry, believe it or not. He grounds all of those blessings in the electing grace of God. 
His choice of these people. Calvin said, rightly so, if the reason is asked why God has called us to enjoy the gospel, why he daily bestows upon us so many blessings, why he opens up to us the gate of heaven, the answer will be constantly found in this principle that he hath chosen us before the foundation of the world. The very time when the election took place proves it to be free. For what could we have deserved? What merit did we possess before the world was made? And yet that is when he chose us. I love how Charles Hodge then uh, went on to summarize what Paul teaches about election in these verses. He gives five points that are worth recording if you are taking notes. He says that this election that he is speaking of, that he's teaching the church about, is first of individuals. It's of individuals. It's not an election of nations or an election even of families. It's an election of individuals. Second, it is in Christ, elected in Christ. Thirdly, it is from eternity. Before the world was began, it was not an election that occurred after the fall. It was an election that occurred before the creation. Fourth, this election is to holiness and to the dignity of sons of God. We are elected to be holy as he is holy. Our election was for the purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. Fifthly, he says, it is founded on the sovereign pleasure of God. Why did he choose to do this? Because it pleased him to do so. He wanted to. Sixthly, the final object, he explains. He says, its final object is the glory of God or the manifestation of his grace. Why were you chosen? That you might glorify God in your life, in your destiny. He speaks of what God the Father, uh, whom he explicitly connects with Jesus Christ. You'll notice he says not just a God. He says, God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, this God he speaks of, is the first person of the Godhead, and he is the Father the one who has eternally begotten the Son, Jesus Christ. And what has he done? What has this God who loved us done? He has blessed us, he says, with every spiritual blessing. And he uses an interesting phrase, in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, that in the heavenly places is is very important. We may not realize it. You may not realize it. But you have been introduced by your salvation. If you have closed with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, your primary abode has changed forever. You are no longer wanderers in the universe. You have become (coughs) heavenly citizens. So here on earth, we live as sojourners and pilgrims. We're, We're passing through this earth. But where is our real citizenship? In heaven is where our real citizenship is. That citizenship has been conferred upon you the moment that you closed in Christ. As you are in him, you are with him, you are naturalized citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting the way that you you see citizenship working out uh, as you travel. Obviously, as I went back and forth uh, to Uganda, um, when you land in a very... you know, any place. When I landed in the United States, immediately they began separating us into two groups. There were citizens and non-citizens. 
And I have to tell you, the citizens were obviously treated much better <laughs> in the line coming in. They were treated with less suspicion and so on. I'm in a rather bizarre category. I'm a green card holder, so I am a permanent resident of the United States, but I'm not a citizen. And so the man asked me, you know, why, where do I live? Why do I live here? And so on. And, and it, was, it was one of those times, normally I, I'm not made to feel like I'm not a citizen of the United States, but it became very stark at that moment while I was talking to him. You are not a citizen of this country, and therefore I view you with a certain amount of suspicion. You don't have the same rights and privileges that the people in this line who were given the grace of being born in this country have. And I didn't begrudge them that. It was a reminder to me that it's probably about time that I actually got on the ball and, and, and worked on becoming a citizen. But remember, <laughs> brothers and citizens, your citizenship is in heaven. And it comes with privileges, immense privileges, that make the citizenship of the United States nothing by comparison. Paul wants them to remember that. They live in Ephesus, but they are heavenly citizens. He goes on and he says, he has blessed us. Note that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Note this, he doesn't say he's blessed the Ephesians with every spiritual blessings. He has not blessed the Corinthians with every spiritual blessing. He has not blessed the Jews with every spiritual blessing merely because they are descendants of Abraham. The blessings that have come are not according to their race, they're not according to their ethnicity, they're not according to the country, they're not according to the city. They are according to the fact that they are in Christ, that they were elected, chosen, and called, and now they are in him. Believers, regardless of the, the estate that they were born into, and remember, Paul would have been writing to people who were not in and of themselves in terms of, of the country that they lived in, were not always even free. Many of the people who would have first heard these words would have been slaves. But he says, no, that slavery, that bondage that you're in in human terms is meaningless in the kingdom of heaven. You are a full citizen. You have become a recipient because you're in Christ of all of the blessings that God desires to give you. And as a result of that blessing, of that citizenship, of that new identity, that adoption in Christ. You will receive holiness and sonship and remission of sins and eternal life. It doesn't matter about anything in this world, your income, your demographics, all of those things. They are utterly meaningless when it comes to your salvation. He has therefore blessed us, the members of the church. But note that he says he's blessed us, not he's blessed everybody. One of the things that you can't help but notice is that salvation is not universal. It's not everyone was saved by the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but rather those whom the Father has chosen and called in due time. You are part of an immensely, immensely privileged group. And privileged not because of yourselves. You were chosen before time. Remember that. He emphasizes that. It should be a very humbling thing, shouldn't it, to us? That we were given all of these things that we didn't deserve, that we didn't earn. You were not just chosen also. Note this. You were chosen in Christ. 
He was always intended to be your representative, your federal head. I want to unpack this. And I, I can't do better than to actually read to you what Charles Hodge says uh, about this idea of Christ as our federal head, Christ being the one in whom we are chosen. So I'd ask you to pay attention to what he says. He says this, the purpose of election is very comprehensive. It is the purpose of God to bring his people to holiness, sonship, and eternal glory. He never intended to do this irrespective of Christ. On the contrary, it was his purpose as revealed in scripture to bring his people to these exalted privileges through a redeemer. It was in Christ as their head and representative. They were chosen to holiness and eternal life. And therefore, in virtue of what he was to do in their behalf, there is a federal union with Christ, which is antecedent. That is before to all actual union. And it is the source of it. God gave a people to his son in the covenant of redemption. Note this. Jesus in the Gospel of John always says, the people you gave me, the ones you gave me, the sheep you gave me, the ones that the Father brought into connection with him, caused to go to Christ. These are the ones for whom he is suffering. These are the ones who he is opening the kingdom up to. They are the ones elected by the Father, redeemed by the Son. God gave a people to his Son, says Hodge, in the covenant of redemption. Those included in that covenant, and because they are included in it, in other words, because they are in Christ as their head and representative, received in time the gift of the Holy Spirit and all other benefits of redemption, their voluntary union with Christ by faith is not the ground of their federal union. But, on the contrary, their federal union is the ground of their voluntary union. Why did we close with Christ? Why did, and we do. We do come to faith in Christ. We are made willing to believe. But why are we made willing to believe? We're made willing to believe because God elected us. God chose us. God, in due time, effectually called us by his grace. And all of this should fill us with wonder that we have been made worthy to receive all of these blessings. We don't understand them. And when did God choose us in Christ? When did he choose the followers? Well, he says before the foundation of the world, before time itself. Now, this is something that's very important. It tells us that God's plan is not reactive. All right? Saving us after the fall was not plan B. After everything went sideways because of what our parents did, in eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God didn't say, oh no, I didn't see that coming. Time for a redeemer. Let's, oh, let's elect some and then we'll work our will in them so that some might be saved. It's, you know, the backup plan. No, it was always God's intention that he would redeem to himself a particular people who would know him and who would know his blessings in a way that even Adam in the garden in his pre-fallen state did not know the Lord. You who are saved, you who are on your way to heaven, you know the Lord in a special way that Adam did not know before that fall, although he had not yet known sin. He did not know God as his merciful redeemer. And he was in that works relationship with him initially after he was created. You are not. You are in a state of grace. And if we understood how wonderful it is to be in a state of grace, it would be our contemplation far more often. We would be more grateful all the time. We would be less disturbed by the things that go on in the world. I am a child of grace. I'm a co-heir with Christ. 
My citizenship is in heaven. In one sense, I should say, who cares who wins and loses elections here on earth? I've been elected by the Father. My election is absolutely secure and has been since before the beginning of time. And because God's plan was made before the beginning of the world, it has always been the plan in his mind. It has always been according to his will, according to his good pleasure. So it can't fail. And even better, it will never change. He's not going to change his mind. It's not the case that he determined before the beginning of time that he would choose you by name, knowing you better than you knew yourself, and then later on he's going to say, eh. you know, I've been watching them. I, I don't know. This Charlie King guy, he, uh, oh, I thought he'd turn out better, but he did that thing on Tuesday. No, strike him out. No, it's not going to happen. Brothers and sisters, if any of us could lose our election, all of us would lose our election. But God preserves us in accordance with his plan, according to his will. There is never a change of mind. God doesn't change. He is immutable. I change not, he says, therefore you are not consumed, O Jacob. It was an assurance given to the people of God. If I've loved you once, I will always love you. So there is no possibility of failure. There is no possibility of any change of purpose. The eternity of God's purpose is therefore the strongest ground for our comfort. I can't even understand how people, you know, professing to be Christians, go through life always wondering, am I going to fall? Am I going to be lost eternally? Am I going to commit some sin that will separate me from the love of God and spend an eternity in hell? Living, fretting that way. I actually saw that. I was raised, um, obviously, in a community uh, in New Jersey, and I went to a Catholic school. The Catholics I knew, those who actually believed Catholic doctrine, were always afraid that they would fall into a mortal sin and be lost forever. I'm saved today. I've received the sacraments of the church, but... What if I die and I don't receive extreme unction? I could be lost forever and go to hell. They had no grounds for assurance. They had no grounds, ultimately, for confidence or comfort. But you do. You have the eternal purpose of God set before you. And as I said, this should humble us. This grace was given to us before we existed. It came into existence before we existed and before we had done any good or evil, therefore, let us never boast in our own goodness. And I know most of us don't say, you know why God saved me? Because I'm just so wonderful. He needed me to be part of his kingdom. We don't say, I've arrived, guys. <laughs> the kingdom's a shinier place now. We know better than that. But sometimes that's what we ground our confidence in, isn't it? I didn't sin much this week. I know I'm going to heaven now, but then what happens the next week when we do? Well, brothers and sisters, it should be that we remember it is according to his mercy that he saved us. And to what? What were we saved? Were we saved merely to be saved? I've often, I've often wondered at, at this. There's a, a kind of a, a nature within American evangelicalism whereby we're saved in order to be saved in order to be saved. And it's, it's like we're born again in order to be born again. And we don't get much beyond that. 
There's no emphasis on what comes next. There's no emphasis on sanctification. If I'm writing a, a book on, say, the life of, of Winston Churchill, one of my favorite, obviously, world leaders, I wouldn't talk about his mother's pregnancy and then the day of his birth and then say, the end, as though that was all that needed to be done. No, there were many things that God had for Winston Churchill to accomplish in the world, and we should write about them. Well, so too, there are many things that God has for you. You were destined to be conformed to the image of his son. A work was to begin with you in the day that you were born again, whereby you became not just part of the kingdom, not just a new creation, a new generation, a born-again believer, but you were given work to do within the body of Christ, good works that you had to do. And the process of sanctification, whereby you are grown in real holiness, so that eventually you would be, in a very real sense, holy and without blame before him in love. His intention is to create a holy people. Now, there are two senses in which we are created and uh, made into a holy people. Just as he chose us in him, we read in verse, uh, starting in verse 4, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. There are two senses in which that is true. One is immediate and the other is progressive. Immediately, when you are justified, the moment you believe in him, you are holy and without blame in a particular category. Why? Well, because the righteousness of Christ has been given to you and your sins have been washed away by his blood. That is a holy and without blame that can never be lost. If it was truly bestowed upon you, you can't lose that holiness. But there is also a progressive sense to holy and without blame. There's that first sense that refers to the justification that we gain in that moment that we are brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and united to him. And then there is that ongoing sanctification that makes us really, truly holy and without blame. That process obviously is not finished until we enter into glory. But we need to remember that there is that wonderful ongoing process that should be occurring in the Christian whereby they are conformed to the image of Christ. Now, one of the things that we look for when we're interviewing people to come into the church, and I've made this point before, but I, you know, it would be wonderful if we could, we could pass a, you know, something like a metal detector, a regeneration detector over them, and if it goes, beep, okay, well, they're regenerate, come on in. You, you may not be perfect yet, but we know you are being perfected. We can't do that. So what do we do? We look for the fruits and evidences. We look to see that they're living, that they have a living faith within them. Now, sometimes those can be faked, but ultimately they should be present. And so if somebody comes to us and they display none of the fruits and evidences of a lively faith, we have good reason to believe they have not yet been born again. But there is that sense in which we know that someone who has been justified will also be sanctified. They will grow holy and blameless. Now, all of this means that we enjoy God's favor, we are heirs, and we participate more and more in his nature. We become more and more like him. And all of that is exercised towards us in the beloved. We're chosen in Christ. Paul always wants to ground our, our salvation in Jesus. 
in ourselves, you, me, everyone in this room, every Christian who's ever lived, even the greatest, think back to the great Christians, the ones who we really admire, whether there were people in your life who you were like, wow, I just wish I could be as holy as she is or as holy as he is. I am, you know, it, it, they're amazing. I, I feel unworthy in their presence or, you know, those great teachers in the past, men like Spurgeon, Calvin, Augustine, or, or people who just did things and you feel like, I'm not doing anything for the kingdom at all compared to someone like Amy Carmichael. And yet know this, all of them were still unworthy in and of themselves. Only Christ is worthy. All of the kindness that is shown to us is by its very nature, grace. Christ, the beloved, is the one who has won for us redemption and who keeps it. It is as we are in him and for his sake that the grace of God is manifested to us. And that, I hope you see, brothers and sisters, is why it is so very critical that we be in Christ. The, the grace of God cannot be manifested to us until we have closed with him, until we have been washed of our sins, until we have his righteousness, until we are justified by faith in him. But not only that, union with him. One of the, the most profitable studies in my life as a Christian has been thinking on what it means to be united to Christ, what it means to be adopted by Christ, what it means to be a co-heir with Christ, to be really united to him, part of his body in a mystical sense. You can spend hours thinking on that. And what is it that happened? We were caused to come to him by faith. Our hearts were changed. We were united to him. But until that happens, we're not in him. And none of the benefits of Christ, uh, of God can come to us unless we're in that relationship. That's why it's so very critical that we go out and preach the gospel and tell people you've got to close with Christ. You've got to come to him. The final end of our election, and this is the final sixth point, is of course the glory of God. He has predestinated us to sonship, to the praise and glory of his grace. So therefore, the entire universe might see and marvel at his mercy. One of the things that the Bible tells us again and again is how the, the angels desire to look into these things and how this is a mystery. It doesn't seem to make sense. It, it, the way the world puts it, and it's just your natural reasoning, if we were going to obtain salvation, we would have to earn it through some sort of series of Herculean uh, events or by uh, domiciling ourselves in a monastery someplace, you know, wearing saffron and begging for our, uh, of our food like the Buddhist monks do or, or giving ourselves over to, uh, to strive uh, for jihad and to advance the kingdom by holy war as the Muslims do and so on. Something like that. That would be the human conception. But what boggles the minds of the angels is that a rebellious people who would become enemies and sinners are redeemed by the second person of the Trinity coming into the world, giving them grace they didn't deserve, and then exalting them to a position higher than the angels, as high as that of Christ. Although we're not deified, we become co-heirs with him. Now, what does that all mean to us? Well, I'm just going to give you two quick applications. The first is that there are no accidents. There's nothing left to chance. God's plans are certain and they are sure. God, the Father, has not been lurching along from accident to accident throughout the, the course of history, reacting to different things. There is no plan B. 
His plans are never thwarted by some sort of unforeseen human decision. So therefore, we can have trust. We can trust his sovereign, redeeming power. We can find comfort in it. The idea that God isn't in charge of all things would mean it would be catastrophic. It means that there can be no ultimate promise that all things will work for good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. But if God is in charge, and what this tells us is God has been in charge before even the creation, then we have nothing to fear. How much assurance should we gain from that? If we've been brought into union with Christ, it's been based on the electing uh, grace of God. It should give us immense peace, immense assurance. This is as important as the, the creation of the universe. Your redemption is not, wow, you got lucky. Your redemption is God loved you before even the beginning of time. How important you were to him boggles the mind. It it should at least. Also, one of the things that you need to understand and take comfort in as well is that the process that's going on here is in one sense analogous to, to building a house. God laid down your blueprints showing what you were to be what you would ultimately be before the foundation of the world. And now he is in the process of building that house. Now, when you go and you look at a house that's being built, sometimes it doesn't look very impressive. Sticks and timbers, weird angles, piles of stuff, dust and stone and so on. And often you can't even guess what the structure is going to look like ultimately until it is finished. But God is going to keep that work going till it is finally completed. And although you may not look perfect right now, there may be a lot of dust and timbers out of place and workmen scurrying to and fro and sometimes things falling down and having to be put back in the right place and so on. Ultimately, that work of completing you, building you into the structure in which God can dwell and be glorified will continue until it is completed. You are being made into the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit just as certainly as Solomon desired to build a temple in Jerusalem that God might dwell in the, in the midst of his people. You are even more important than that temple. Remember this, God was willing to let the temple of Solomon be wrecked, but he is never going to let you be wrecked or torn down. You are therefore a temple made without hands, You are so precious to God that he was willing to sacrifice his own son to bring you to him. You were saved by God, purchased at a cost, and not merely note this, and this is my last and final point, but it is so very important, especially today. You were not saved by God to be some sort of self-contained, autonomous Christian unit. You were saved to be part of the body of Christ of which he is the head. You were designed from before the beginning of time to be part of the church, the covenant community. You were a brick in that greater temple that God envisaged before he even began the work. And without you, there would be a hole in the wall. You may not see yourself as very special within the kingdom or special within that building that God is creating, but he did. That's why he chose you. He had a purpose. I want her there for purposes she doesn't even understand. But the building would not be 
the perfect plan that I have in mind without her at this time and in this place. What an amazing contemplation that should be to you. That before God created the sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the trees, the squirrels, he had you in mind in a certain place in his wonderful church, the body of Christ. And therefore, you have purpose. There are so many people who live this life. There, I, I, I hear things, and my, 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 my daughter and my wife can confirm this, that, that boggle the mind in the culture at the moment. I was listening yesterday to, uh, there, there's the creator of this new VR helmet um, or headset, uh, and it's based on a, on a, a graphic comic uh, called um, Sword Art Online that became an anime uh, show and so on. But the idea is that when you die in the game, you die in real life. And there are actually tons of people who responded to the, the news that this creator was attempting to create a headset that would actually kill the user if they died in the game. No joke. They responded, I'd do that. I have nothing here on earth to live for. What a tragedy. There are people who are living a life that is utterly purposeless. All they are doing is going through life just looking for a little sensual pleasure and experience here and there. And they really feel worthless. They wake up every day worthless in their own mind. You, brothers and sisters, have eternal, abiding, glorious worth. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of the direction that the devil may be pushing you in at any moment in time, that is who you are created by God after he had designed you before time was to be part of the thing that he was building to glorify his name. What is your chief end, therefore? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You have a forever importance. Never forget that. Not during this entire life. You are to him forever important because of who he has chosen you to be in his glorious son. What could be greater than that? When you wake up, Christian, think of that at least once. And never let the devil deceive you to think that you are without purpose in this world. Let's go before him. God, our Father, we thank you that you have chosen us in Christ. What great and glorious work you have done. Help us, therefore, not to be deceived by the world, although they may see us as off-scourings, as completely unimportant. Yet we know, O oh Lord, you have purposes for us we can't even conceive of right now. I look forward to that day when we will see your plan brought to its perfect end. And then we will look back in awe and say, he has done all things well. Even in those times when we, we suffered affliction, we didn't understand what was going on, those moments of pain and loss, we will be able to see, ah, yes, now I see. Now I see not only why this had to happen, but how it works for his glory and how he loved me. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would have a glimmer of that on this side of glory as we look forward to seeing perfectly when we see you face to face. We